ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello there, it's the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West here on RN and on ABC Listen. The terrorist attack by Hamas on southern Israel has triggered that most natural of responses, a righteous anger and retribution for the victims. Israel has now tightened its siege on Gaza. No medicine, no food, no water. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says he will eliminate Hamas, remake the Middle East. But how? And what will that look like? David Myers is a historian of Judaism and Israel at the University of California, Los Angeles. He runs something called the Initiative to Study Hate. And he spent three often heartbreaking decades working for Israeli-Palestinian reconciliation. I spoke with David earlier. What took place on Saturday was, simply put, a massacre of now 900 people, unlikely to top 1,000 people who were hunted house by house in cold blood, children, elderly people, women, men, and I think on its own terms must be condemned without hesitation Mm. as the gravest of violations of human dignity. At some level, the world is divided between those who believe in the sanctity of human life and those who don't. Mm. And if you do, then your first instinct has to be to condemn this without hesitation. It's important to note that this doesn't emerge out of uh, thin air. The hateful rage that drove the militants to cross the border and make their way to 22 Israeli towns in order to murder its residents emerges out of a century-long conflict that has become more bloody and more lethal and more fractious over time. Hmm. What is striking about it, I should say, in addition to the depth and scale of the massacre, is the colossal intelligence failure on the Israeli side. Hmm. So two things took place. One, a near-perfect logistical operation on Hamas's part, and a near-total and catastrophic failure of Israeli intelligence. And that adds to the depth of indignation and despair within Israel. That creates a very dangerous psychological mindset in which to operate and make decisions. And that's indeed the situation in which Benjamin Netanyahu is located now. Israel's government, quite understandably, says it will eliminate Hamas. But Hamas, it may be a movement, but isn't Hamas also an ideology, David? And can they eliminate an ideology? Because one assumes an ideology feeds off certain sentiments. Yeah, I'm highly dubious of the proposition that Israel can eliminate Hamas, even in the physical sense. Israel has engaged in a strategy since its withdrawal from Gaza in 2005 of mowing the lawn, as it refers to it in the kind of coldest of military euphemisms, which is to say to undertake periodic incursions into Gaza with the objective of uh, liquidating the military leadership of Hamas. But that repeated series of actions has not had the effect of, of bringing to an end 
Hamas's reign in Gaza, and it hasn't prevented Gaza incursions into to Israel. I think it's highly unlikely that the IDF, even with a massive ground assault, will be able to eliminate Hamas. I think that's um, uh, delusional, both in the material physical sense and, as you suggest, because it's an ideology of resistance that will continue until there's a reason to stop the resistance. Uh, and that points to the larger context in which the last few days' events uh, must be situated. There would be no resistance were uh, it the case that the Palestinians have, had achieved a measure of dignity and self-respect to go with self-determination. Until those goals are achieved, the resistance in all likelihood will continue. Uh, the ideology of Hamas will continue. The practices and... Um, violent approach of Hamas will continue, and we will be immersed in a perpetual cycle of violence. David, the monstrosity of this attack and the images, one particular one struck with me, and that was the elderly woman, a Holocaust survivor, I'm assuming she was only a little girl when she survived the Holocaust, being abducted. Uh, That does make this, in a very real way, Israel's own 9-11. I can understand the comparison. But here's the other question, though. What lessons should we actually draw from the original 9-11, the Al-Qaeda attack on New York? Because that was done in the spirit of righteous anger as well. But what do we have to learn from that? We have to learn from that that military solutions alone will not solve the very vexing problems that animated and motivated the terrorists to hijack planes and and fly them into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. Here, too, we must understand that a military solution alone, even a massive invasion by Israel, even if Israel seizes control of Gaza from within, because it currently maintains control from outside, will not solve the very deep and real problem that stands at the heart of the conflict. Um, it would be illusory of Israelis to think that that would be the case, but it's entirely understandable given the depth of anger, given the fact that the sight of a Holocaust survivor being led away into Gaza taps into the deepest fears and traumas of Israeli Jews issuing from the Holocaust. There is indeed still active a deep Holocaust trauma syndrome that animates Israeli political life and informs the decisions of of its politicians. And this simply triggers that sense of trauma in the most profound way and, to my mind, clouds the judgment of political and military leaders, whose impulse, as Prime Minister Netanyahu declared on Saturday, was to exact mighty vengeance Mm -hmm. against Hamas. The, The thing about vengeance is it begets further calls for vengeance and drops us into that eternal cycle of violence. One thing that Benjamin Netanyahu said, among many, was that uh, he's going to remake the Middle East for generations. Uh, Arguably, the Middle East could do with a remaking, but what does remaking the Middle East actually look like? What are the consequences of it? The only way I can see Netanyahu remaking the Middle East is if, in the course of the conflict with Gaza, other fronts are set in motion 
and Israel is compelled to engage in battle with Hezbollah in, in Lebanon and with Iran to its east. That is the brink toward which this engagement with Gaza pushes us, as if the engagement in Gaza that's forthcoming isn't treacherous and lethal enough. The real stakes are the prospect of conflict with Hezbollah, which has tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of precision missiles that can inflict massive damage on Israel, which would produce a massive Israeli counter-response, which could trigger the entry of Iran into the conflict. And at that point, there will be a reordering of the Middle East, but it will bear no resemblance to what we know today, if anything actually remains intact. When you're taking on an adversary that is prepared to die, um, that really changes the whole equation as well. Yeah, it does. And it makes very complicated the kind of response that an army takes in such situations. It would be unimaginable that uh, Israel would do nothing in the face of this massacre. It must defend itself and it must do all it can to reestablish uh, a shield of deterrence such that this never happen again. But I want to also say, Andrew, that it seems to me uh, we're simply playing according to the same old script, the same paradigm, vengeance begetting vengeance. One of the things we learned from the 1973 Yom Kippur War was that the old script was no longer viable. In fact, that shock, that stunning invasion by Egyptian and Syrian forces, which indeed induced deep trauma in Israel, ultimately led, over the course of a five-year period, to the emergence of a new paradigm, uh, the paradigm of negotiation with Israel's greatest rival to that point, Egypt. Thank you so much for coming back to the program, David. Thank you, Andrew. Looking forward to better days. That's veteran peace advocate Professor David Myers of UCLA, where he runs the initiative to study hate. David is also the international chairman of the New Israel Fund. Now, since the massacre, there's been widespread speculation about Hamas's major supporter, Iran. The Islamic Republic denies involvement in the attack, but its leaders did call it, quote, a legitimate defence of the Palestinian nation. Iranian scholar Dr. Mariam Aslani of Oxford University calls Iran a neo-colonialist regime. She says it's exporting a uniquely harsh brand of Shia Islam to the region. She wrote an essay for The New Statesman and she says the recent speech at the UN by Iran's president, Ibrahim Raisi, revealed the bigger plan. His message was the world and the humanity is basically doomed, we are all on a path to destruction. And we can only be saved if we put ourselves under the protection of the sovereign rule of Allah. He basically picked up Goran and displayed it into the General Assembly and conveyed that Goran is a book, a holy book that represents that sovereign rule of Allah on earth. He also went on advocating Goran as the only thing that can save and preserve human dignity. But let's be very clear, when he talks about human dignity, Andrew, is not what you and I may think about human dignity. His idea is really about redemption after the end of history. Mm. 
Did that sermon, as it were, reflect in any way the vision of the Ayatollah Khomeini back in 1979? Is there a continuous theme there that he was pushing in the United Nations? It was exactly that. The vision of Khomeini and the vision of this regime is the expansion of Shia revolution universally. Ibrahim Raisi advocating the universal rule of Allah and Goran is very much in line with the vision of the regime. As you point out in this really interesting article that you co-wrote for The New Statesman, modern Iran is not a nationalist regime. So what is it if it's not a nationalist regime? I think, Andrew, it's very important and crucial for the international community to understand that the Islamic Republic is not like any other nation states. Its aim is a global Shia revolution. The aim of this revolution is to spread Shia doctrine universally, destroy Israel, and generate an earthly war of all against all, so to create a condition for the final destruction and the return of the 12th Shia Imam who is supposed to come back and lead the Muslim forces through this destruction to a redemption. This is the nature of this regime. And I mean, the founder of the Islamic revolution, Khomeini, very clearly said Islam opposes nationalism. He even warned his followers that we do not need people who want to be part of a nation. We need people who are Muslims. Even themselves, they never claim to be a normal nation state. Khomeini's vision is to create an ummah. The English translation would be something like community of Muslim, mm. which, of course, will be divided if we start drawing earthly boundaries and borders between them. They want to have a universal Shia revolution and any national boundaries that can come in between and can divide the Muslim is something illegitimate. Mm. And the other thing is that in their representation of Shia Islam, no earthly system of governance is legitimate. So, Mariam, where has this vision of the Ayatollahs begun to transcend national borders, especially in the region? The first thing that comes in mind is the support of Hezbollah by economic support, also indoctrination program in several countries such as Iraq, Syria, Morocco, Yemen, even going as far as European countries like uh, United Kingdom and Germany. Basically, what they're trying to do is to export a variety of program, whether it's indoctrination program or sending funds, even moving Shia population from Iran to fight in Syria, to fight in Lebanon. Isn't the absence of nationalism one of the strengths of Islam down through the centuries? It's not tied to one ethnic group. Yes, but Andrew, let's make it very clear. We're not talking about Islam here. We're not talking about a religion. We're talking about how the Islamic Republic is using their own interpretation of Shia Islam to justify their expansion universally. Yes, it may be a good thing that Islam, like all religions, are inclusive. But as I said, we're not only talking about the religion. We're talking about a brutal autocratic regime that has no respect 
for other religion, has no respect for human rights, has no respect for human dignity, and basically has turned the Iranian people to illegal citizen if they dare to oppose the regime's version of Shia Islam. Not only is not inclusive, their interpretation of Islam is used as a tool of oppression and violence. It's the most horrific form of governance because they are justifying Islam for their repression. This is a time that the Muslim community around the world should actually rise up and do not allow the regime to use Islam as a legitimizing force for its brutality. So if it's not a nationalist project on the part of the Ayatollahs and Iran generally, why do you say that it is in fact a colonialist project, especially within Iran itself? First is about a relation of domination in which the entire society is robbed of its historical line of development. Second, the pursuit of the foreign agenda of the colonial rulers and how that agenda comes to shape the fundamental decisions that then come to affect the lives of colonized people. And finally, that the colonizers are convinced of their own ordained mandate rule. We see that the Islamic Republic has colonized Iran. Yeah, well, that's very interesting, Mariam. In what ways? The historical trajectory of uh, Iran's political development was cut off in 1979 when the Islamic Revolution happened. That political trajectory produced the Middle East's first parliamentary democracy in 1906, and this is called the Constitutional Revolution. And by 1920s, Iran was uh, very much on path to a secular legal system, freedom of speech and belief and rights of women and all religious minorities were being guaranteed. This political innovation emerged more or less from the political tradition that dates back to ancient Persia. In 1979, the Islamic Republic tried to undo all of that. How is the Iranian regime actually rejecting the glorious past of uh, ancient Persia, uh, which in many ways, for many centuries, was an Islamic past? This campaign that aimed to destroy Persian culture resulted in devastating losses uh, to global cultural heritage. Basically, they had no consideration for any of this ancient political thinking, no consideration for ancient cultural heritage in Iran, any emphasis on Persian symbols, art and history was very much forbidden in Iran. You see a backlash to this destruction in the current movement in Iran. Demonstrators emphasize very much on Persian art and history. Dr. Mariam Aslani of Oxford University, there's a link to her New Statesman article at our website. The war between Israel and Hamas is another chapter in what Pope Francis calls World War III, these seemingly separate conflicts, but with a lot in common. And just as it ignited, the Pope was leading more than 400 delegates in his landmark synod to quite possibly reshape power inside the Catholic Church. 
But it's not just the war that overshadowed the Synod. There was a major papal statement on climate change and a controversy over same-sex blessings. Christopher White is Rome correspondent for the independent newspaper, The National Catholic Reporter. Christopher, uh, welcome. First of all, what did Francis say about the Israel-Hamas war? At Sunday Angelus, it was the first thing the Pope spoke about, and he said... Every war is a defeat, and he called for an end of both war and terrorism. So I think this is this was the Pope's message to both sides here, to stop the terrorism, but also not to escalate this. He really called for a laying down of arms and for people to come to negotiation and a peace. It's something that burdens him greatly, that not only do we have the war in Ukraine happening right now, but we have this new conflict bubbling up in the Middle East. This is a Pope of peace, and these, are, these concerns really top his agenda at the moment. This Pope is quite invested in the Middle East peace process, if there is indeed a peace process, isn't there? Because he went to Israel and Palestine, so I think he's got a big part of his heart in this. I think that's fair to say. The Vatican remains one of the major proponents of a two-state solution. I think in recent years we've seen a number of people begin to give up hope of that possibility. But very recently, we heard Archbishop Gallagher, the Vatican's foreign minister, really double down and reiterate this. We saw him just last month at the United Nations General Assembly in New York really talk about the need for peace in the Holy Land. And this was, of course, the most recent conflicts of just the past few days here. Peace in the Holy Land is something that has long been a top priority for the Vatican, and no more so than in recent days. And at this synod, is not the cardinal from uh, Jerusalem uh, present? Yes. Just last weekend, a week ago, Pope Francis elevated Jerusalem's patriarch, Cardinal Pizzaballa, to the College of Cardinals, in order, I think, to raise his profile and to acknowledge the work that he's done in a very difficult backyard, trying to maintain peace with difficult neighbours. Just after our last program, the Pope released his statement on the environment, Laudate Diem, praise God. Not a lot of praise uh, for governments and multinational corporations in this statement, is there, Christopher? No, this was a letter that I guess it's in terms of papal documents was quite short. It was just 10 or 11 pages. But the overall forecast and tone was bleak. And it was a particularly scientific document, the Pope really taking on climate deniers, both in the world and the church in particular, and saying governments haven't done their job. We've had mixed results with these international summits trying to tackle climate change. And he said, I wrote on this eight years ago, and I'm writing again because the situation has further deteriorated. And with a particular eye on this upcoming meeting at the end of November and December in Dubai called COP28, which is the next big UN summit on climate. This is the Pope, I think, really saying this is an issue that I've invested in strongly over the course of my pontificate. And the world continues to go down a path that is unsustainable. I think that's why we saw this tone of frustration and really the Pope wagging the finger at those that have failed to do their duty to reduce carbon emissions and really work together to, in his words, build a common home and a common future that is sustainable. Yeah, I was not surprised at all by the comments that he directed at multinational corporations. I was a little bit surprised at the stridency of his remarks directed at people within his own church. Who's he talking about there, Christopher? 
I am an American reporter, and I think he's speaking primarily to people in my home country there. When the Pope first wrote on climate in 2015, his famous encyclical Laudato Si, the hotbed of resistance to that encyclical really came from American Catholics. I think it's important to go back to those days early on in his pontificate in 2014-2015 when the Pope said he was going to write on the environment. We saw American conservative Catholics organize a big conference at the Vatican, pushing back, and that was all sort of organized by climate deniers. We saw a number of Catholic politicians saying, listen to the Pope when it comes to matters of faith and morals, but he's no scientist. They said that very publicly, and I think that's something that stuck with Pope Francis. Just before the Synod began, there was a papal statement on same-sex blessings, There's always a lot of second-guessing about what the Pope really means. But what did he actually say about same-sex blessings? Well, I think the context of this is critical. On the eve of the Synod, just two days before it began, five retired traditionalist-type cardinals published what they described as correspondence that they had had with the Pope where they had put to him five specific questions on a number of hot-button issues, but specifically on the question of gay blessings and women's ordination. And they wanted yes or no answers. Can the church support gay blessings, yes or no? And the Pope did not deliver gay blessings, an answer to the question of gay blessings, in a yes or no manner. Instead, he wrote several pages on this. And he said, one, the church cannot do anything that would appear to cause confusion or water down its teachings on what it has long taught to be traditional marriage between a man and a woman open to children. But he said people search out blessings for all sorts of reasons, and our job as pastors is to encourage people in their search for God. And he said we can't just be rule makers and judges. And so this was the Pope signaling an openness to this, and he effectively said, I don't think we need blanket solutions to this or or liturgical templates like we've seen, I think, in places like Belgium or Germany, where they are actually issuing guidelines on how to offer same-sex blessings. But what we do see in this document is the Pope basically giving the freedom to priests to discern very carefully how and when might be an appropriate time to provide a blessing, in this case, to same-sex couples. Yes, so no change to doctrine on marriage or sexuality. But I guess, is this a concession to what Catholics are telling the Pope is already happening at grassroots, especially in Europe? The Pope is fairly pragmatic, and he sees that these things are happening in certain locations. So I think he's trying to, one, offer some fairly clear guidelines of where the Church stands. One very clear signal from the Pope that the Church isn't going to change its position on what marriage means and is. But also, as Francis often does, he's searching for a pastoral solution, how to show people that God is present in their lives, even in circumstances when the church might not describe to be ideal. So I think that is why you see the Pope signaling a willingness to consider this question. I mean, in the United States, for example, where I come from, priests bless cars all the time. They bless hunting rifles. And so (laughs) the question of blessings is a very broad category. (laughs) Indeed. 
we've been talking for quite a while now and we haven't raised the issue of the synod, the synod on synodality. How much do we actually know about what's happened in the first few days of that synod? Because just reading your reports, didn't the Pope tell people, tell delegates, I want you to go on a fast, as it were, from appearing in the media? So do we know what's been happening That's right. On the very first afternoon of their meeting, the Pope said, consider this effectively a retreat and fast for media. And he did so, I think, because he wants for no individual to really become a newsmaker or a protagonist in this month-long meeting on the future of the Catholic Church. Christopher White, he's the very well-informed Vatican correspondent for the independent newspaper, The National Catholic Reporter. Thanks for coming back to the program. Andrew, always a pleasure, and I look forward to seeing you in person in just a few weeks. And yes, Christopher is doing a speaking tour in November. That is the show you can find us at ABC Listen. A big thanks to Hong Jang and Nathan Turnbull. I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.